Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is Ubo, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never Mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. Did you know 50 years ago today, I just found this out, Slaughter on 10th Avenue came out. Now, I don't know what that means to you, Mick Ronson solo album. No, I remember Mick Ronson solo and it was a very, I remember it being a very big deal, it, it being made to look like a very big deal at the time, but it, didn't quite land, did it? No, it didn't quite land, but I I loved it, and it, it was a big influence on me, I think, as a guitar player. I, I particularly loved Slaughter on 10th Avenue, the sound really? of his I'm guitar. complicated. <laughs> the sound of his guitar, I just thought, was so exquisite, so vocal. And and I just wanted to mention, because I, I had that most amazing experience, you know, because he was one of the big influences in my life as a guitar well, player, yes, yes. Um, that I went and found that guitar, you know, That's years right. later. in in Monte Carlo, wasn't it? I did a documentary, and I think it was for Sky Arts, and it was about Mick Ronson, and part of the journey, as you say on TV, it was to go and find this guitar. And it's a bit of a disappointment when you see it, to be honest now, because I remember that guitar looking so sort of strange. It was a blonde front, but it was basically raw wood at the front. It was a it was a Les Paul custom black that had it been... stripped it, hadn't it? Stripped yeah. it. And then it had all got smashed up. But you know, at one point, he dropped it uh, uh, when he was playing with Ian the Hunter, broke the neck off. It was all strapped. And it ended up in the back of Midjewer's wardrobe. What? Yes. <laughs> it ended up in the back of Midjewer's wardrobe. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis kind of vibe, you know. Go to yeah. the back of the wardrobe. <laughs> it's Mick Ronson's guitar. Was, yeah, Narnia and Mick Ronson's guitar. <laughs> anyway, it, Mick did it up in the end. and it. So when you see it now, it's all a bit lacquered and a bit, you know, it's not all what right. you wanted. I digress because there was a... Do you? There was a... I mean, do you? Wow. Because... <laughs> I, I, I just try... try I know, it's great. Offering this, up this, news. This is what we're all about. Yeah, it's what we're I digress about. because I think the second electric guitar I ever bought was an Ibanez copy of a Gibson 175. Why, would, uh, why did I buy that? 
because our guest today is synonymous with the ES-175, which is traditionally a jazz guitar. Yeah, yeah. And it's all, also a Gibson, but I couldn't afford a Gibson. I got an Ibanez copy. A Not even without a case. <laughs> nice. And uh, for those who know, they know. And, um, yes. you know, he was a... Uh, listen, I don't know how he could be an inspiration because... To play the kind of licks that Steve Howe played on that opening, the Yes album, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it's just, it's jazz, you're right. It, and it's phenomenal playing. But there was something inspired, it was something to achieve. I'm still hoping to achieve it. What I'm really amazed at with Steve Howe is just what was happening before Yes, because he was everywhere for a few years. It's amazing. I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to getting yeah. stuck into that yeah. stuff. But also, yeah, it's, because what's incredible with Steve is, because he's the one person you wouldn't think of to associate with kind of post-punk or punk or anything. And yet he was Keith Levine. And apparently this was all the way back in the time of Pill and everything, always cited Steve Howe as his greatest influence. Well, see, there you are. And of course, the ES-175 was famously played by Geordie from Killing Joke. Trevor Horn was a massive fan. And Steve, who's coming on any second, you can just, just wait, just wait, played the acoustic guitar solo on uh, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. That's right. Did you did. know that? But of course, also, the best three Yes albums ever made, you know, the, the classic ones, the Yes album, Fragile, Close to the Edge, and more and yeah. more. If you try and go through the Yes sort of discography, topography, or, or tales of topography, even, <laughs> uh, and just all the people come and go, it's like your, your head explodes. Impossible. It, it's, it's like some, like sort of the, sort of some Austro-Hungarian royal family yes yes and even <laughs> even pete frame couldn't have put this rock family tree together without no, no, like pete frame that could have had an entire career yeah. just this, doing yes this wouldn't be a book would it it would be wallpaper if, if, if pete frame had to do yes <laughs> exactly good one end of versailles to the other <laughs> anyway let's let's get him on welcome to the rock on tours Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. It's, it's get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Steve, and beautiful clarity. Your Wi-Fi is obviously pumped up, it, full it, of steroids. Listen, Starlink is is the only link you need because this is running at 120 to 300 megabytes. That's what I got. Oh, you got it too. That's what I got. It's, oh, yeah. it's um, yeah, well, I had no choice. But it's, I have no choice. <laughs> but it is amazing. You two and Zelensky has it as well, doesn't he? I mean, That's it? right. It's what they use in Ukraine on the battlefield. Oh, God. We're not, and can I just add, we're making no money from Starlink right now, are we? Even though we're saying this, this is an ad. Steve, so lovely to finally get to talk to you. This is, yeah, this is brilliant. So great to have you. Sorry, and hello. I'm Guy. Oh, hi, Guy. How you doing? I'm Gary. <laughs> and Gary, how are you doing? You've got the headphones on. Oh, no, you've both got headphones on. Sorry. I was, I was just saying that yeah. we were talking about guitar influences when we, when we, on our intro, yeah. when we were kids. And, 
You know, for me, uh, Mick Ronson was my first love. But then after a a, a year or so, I bought an Ibanez copy of a 175 because of you. I could never play it like you. But I also want to add one other little thing there where where your influence entered my group, Spandau Ballet, all those years later. But when I was sort of looking for fellow musicians in about 1975 to form a band with, 76... The reason I hooked on a guy called Steve Norman is because I walked into the music room and he was attempting to play the clap. Oh, yeah. He was. Or clap, as I should say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but he did a pretty good job. Oh. And I thought, well, I'll hang with him. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. If you can play clap, you must be okay, <laughs> I guess, was a criteria. I think, yeah, we had that in the really early days. I mean, the, the very, very early days. If you could play Apache, you got the gig. You know what I mean? If you knew how to play that. <laughs> But well, that was always a thing around yes, wasn't it? From the beginning, I remember because I remember Bill Bruford saying there was this terrible competitiveness about playing, and there was this worry that if there was anyone sort of down the street who could play a bit better than you, then you'd be. <laughs> yeah, there was a sort of almost orchestral rule as well. All oh, that guy, you know, the second bass is screwing up, change him. <laughs> that kind of ruthless. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, in a band like like yes, it, 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 there, there was a kind of flow of musicians. You know, a lot of them keyboard players, but there was a lot of flow of musicians coming in and out. And some of it was really unfortunate, and we just had to deal with the what we were presented with. You know, here's the situation, get on with it. But uh, you know, other times it was it, it, it's like when Jeff and Trevor joined us for drama. That was a kind of whole reinvention again of of seventies. Yes, uh, and so there were lots of pluses. Anyway, well, you've been in you've been in yes the longest now. Now that uh, you know Alan, our rest in peace, has, has gone, and um, you you are the longest member. But do you think just saying that that it. it your particular sound and your style and who you are then mm-hmm. is is the hinge for it all that that and regardless of how many musicians are coming in and going <laughs> it's about you now steve really in well sense. to some extent listen i noticed something i'd written i think i must have been looking at a scrapbook or a quote book or something but i i know i said when i joined yes that, that peter banks was a was a, a good guitarist and, and i had somewhere to take it from you know what i mean i had a starting point and uh, somebody once accused me of copying him. And I said, look, I was already like psychedelic out, you know, I was into my thing, you know, and I was looking for a band where I was as free as a bird, you know, I didn't want restrictions. And so, yes, was offered me that whole whole kind of palette. But certainly my sound has become, you know, somewhat synonymous with it. You know, Trevor Rabin did the, did the 80s. And basically, you know, there was a... A shift back to to a more you know seventies uh, uh, desire for the sound, and of course, you know that music stood up incredibly well. But we love making new music, but you know it's also great to be able to play you know and pick and choose what we play from the great. Because as soon as you came into the band, on yours is no disgrace, and we'll we'll go back to the beginning and we'll come back to yes, I'm sure. But just say, yeah. you are all over that intro, playing possibly every style of guitar <laughs> that you can you you had in your locker. Yeah, I guess I did throw everything into yes, you know, because you know, I hadn't nowhere else to put it really, and I'd been hoping that a band of equal uh, musicianship capabilities as me could could do something. And yeah, I had I had a lot of tunes up my sleeve, you know, I already had parts of Close to the Edge written, Tales from Topographic Oceans. Some of that was, you know, in the '69 period when I was in one band and looking for the next band. 
you know, I, I wrote quite a lot of music and some of it became, you know, part of, yes. Yeah. So yeah, the guitar, the guitar, the way I was different from a lot of guys, I guess, was I wasn't really into a big trebly thing. I like warm sounds and I didn't, I like clean sounds, you know, and this was kind of like, but I had to marry it or mix it, if you like, with power. And yours, you know, this grace is a great example. Yeah. I'm all over the intro and the theme starts up and then I'm over the theme and, then the vocals start up and then I get in. And when I do that solo with the touch of wah and, and that's a multi-mood solo, you know, it starts with the stabs and all that dead dead and clicking on the guitar and things, quite rock and roll. But once it starts moving, it, it goes to different places, you know. And I remember Bill saying to me after I'd done that solo, I wish I'd known all the things you're going to play because I might have played something else. But basically, I designed that stu that solo after the backing track was written. So, the, you know, I had those structures, the do 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 and all that stuff. I had all that kind of like just looking for a home, you know, and suddenly, yes, was the home yeah. so much of my guitar work, like it was with Worm and, you know, seeing all good people, you know, it was a lovely opening. I I'll never thank the guys enough. Because, <laughs> of course, because when you come into, yes, Steve, all the stuff you're doing before, because this is what I'm going to do, you, you've got that period, that's, it's like three years before, yes, where you're everywhere. Mm -hmm. You are everywhere. It's fantastic. Um, um, lots of stuff. But then... Um, I said, but your sound, even before, yes, you were kind of very much ahead of the pack. A lot of people were still, like you said, trebly and twangy and everything. It's like you and Jeff Beck were kind of just that bit in front of everyone yeah. else. I think it was the influences, you know, the, the, I mean, although I like, you know, Hank Marvin, Dwayne Eddy, all the original guys, I got into Tal Farlow and, and Wes Montgomery big time because I saw him. And basically the styles I picked up, but then I heard Chet Atkins and that was it. It was like, ding. But I want to tell you a little story because although Chet has always been the guy I've always said. Shit Hopkins, as David Gilmore always called <laughs> Is he really? Hopkins? That's good. <laughs> shit, shit Hopkins. Hopkins. Yeah. But you see, the, the really nifty thing was it took me years to realize in fact les paul had been a much greater influence on me because that started when i was about eight years old when my parents had the 78s and they were buying like you know he you know the high how high the moon and the world is waiting for the sunrise mm -hmm. and, and and i heard all this guitar i didn't i just absorbed it you know so when i look back later i realized that yeah les paul you know i met him a few times he's a character he was a character and basically, he was a huge influence before I even got to Chet. But once I heard Chet, yeah, I mean, I love this guy, you know, and, and, I, and I adopted that style. Like you say, on the Yes album, I'm playing Clap, I'm playing Yours and Grace, I'm playing Worm. You know, there's a lot of variety. And that, that's what I think I learned from both of those guys. You know, your voice is, is quite comforting for me because that accent, I recognise so much from North London because <laughs> I, I, was, I was born and brought up on the Essex Road. Right. Uh, 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 not that far from the Holloway Road where you where you grew up, and Rod Stewart was also from there. Was he really? I didn't know that. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, his parents had a tobacconist just off the of, off of the Holloway Road. Oh, really? Oh, I must yeah, have, yeah. I might have gone in there when I was underage. But we were all like, "Nag, did you know the Nag's Head then?" Because that was like a place yeah. in Holloway that was like the centre. But I'll meet you at Nag's Head. Uh, and yeah, yeah, of course. You know, the Nag's Head is yeah very famous. But but. I just, you know, growing up then in that in that Islington world, we we you there seems to be elements of all, all this music coming into your life. Was this all through your parents? 
Well, those initial things were, and, and I found that any kind of music got me physically jumping around. Was he musical, your dad? He, he did like music, yeah, and he did his painting. He was, he was a, a master chef. He was a, a cordon bleu chef. And basically, he, he had some artistic skills, and uh, he did like music, and basically, you know, more like band music, and not, not strictly jazz or anything, but as I had an older brother who liked jazz, and then... A, my other young, young brother that was not as old but still older than me he was really big on jazz so I had those influences floating around uh, all the time I, I couldn't really avoid them um, but uh, Islington the the, the, the the strange thing is that it's couldn't really find what I wanted in Islington I had to go to Tottenham so part of my upbringing was, was as soon as I learned to play the guitar and I was looking for somewhere to play I met a guy in Tottenham that's funny because you're kind of moving further out. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, usually with London, you see we go further yeah. out. Of course, when it, a bit later on, it became the epicenter with with, the, with pubs like the Hope and Anchor, of course, right. which weren't I don't think existed. Yes, in the sixties. Yeah. So what 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 was that that well? First of all, did you have a guitar by the time it you moved to Tottenham, as it were? Oh yeah, yeah. I was. I, I'm thinking that. Well, I got a guitar when I was twelve. You know, after wanting one for a couple of years. And it was a cello guitar. I picked it out myself. It was a cello guitar. I wasn't going to get a Spanish guitar or an electric guitar. I had to get a cello guitar. That was, that was my first guitar, was actually. It? Yeah, yeah. yeah terror. Could, could hardly press the strings down. They were so high up. I, um, I, was, I was vaguely interested in dance band guitar because I bought a book called Eric Kershaw's Dance Band Chords and that was that nobody was playing these chords. I thought, I don't hear these chords. But then, of course, they were in jazz a lot. And I wanted to learn a bit more about the so it wasn't Burt Whedon. You weren't Burt Whedon. <laughs> well, he was never very impressive because he was always too straight. You know, he was always a bit on. But, I, you know, the stories. You know, I mean, he was the only guitarist I knew. His merchandising was homemade marmalade. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> Eating a day. So, yeah, he was, not, he was more mums and dads. You know, he was the middle-of-the-road guitarist, you know. But yeah. so one of the reasons I got a 175 was because, well, Wes Montgomery was seen with one and, and Jim Hall and lots of jazz guitar. Yeah, did Joe Pass play? Joe Pass played a 175. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. right. Well spotted. And also uh, an English guitarist called Judd Proctor. Uh, uh, he played a 175. Now, he made a fascinating instrumental called Nola, which was very fast. You know, and I had to learn this, you know, by slowing it down to 33, of course. And and so the 175, um, well, that came later when I was 16. So when I was 12, I got the cello. But then I, with, within two years, I had electric guitar. It was a, a Gaia tone. Uh, I think it's called LG50 or something, or sometimes called Nantoria. A little Japanese guitar, very small body with kind of big pickups. In fact, Hank Marvin was playing one of these before he got the strap, you know, with the oh. story that it was written yeah, Bruce yeah, Welch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Hank's yeah. been on the show, Bruce Welch has we've been had, on the yeah, show. We've had them both on, yeah, we've had right. both sides. So that little guitar was great fun. I got a Burns jazz for a little while, which was... Too which the Shadows played as well, right, Burns? Yeah, with the Shadows. But of course, yeah. the Shads were quite synonymous with the with the Fender sound. I, yeah. I, I couldn't really grapple with Fenders at the time. But I, I, I was moving along. And then when I was 17, I said to my mum and dad, you know, if, if I'm going to do this for real, I, I need a great guitar. You know, I really need a good guitar. So when I said it was 200 guineas, they were like, what? I said, well, like, if you put the deposit down, you know, I'll pay the, I'll pay the, um, the regular monthly. 
God, in those yeah. days, that's a wow. two, 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 200 guineas. Such a quid. I mean, guineas. they were expensive. Uh, so how? And, and I had to, <laughs> I had to order it. It came in two months later. So I got that guitar. That seemed to be like it, you know, with me. That I, I it was like I've come home. This is the guitar, you know. And it turned out to be right that even though I switched endlessly across different Gibson guitars every album during the seventies, eventually going somewhere in the middle to Fender Telecasters. And basically, I wanted to explore what the guitar could do, looking for a sound, but I kind of had it. <laughs> I already had it. I was looking around and looking around. But wherever I went, I seemed to make some sort of recognisable sound, even on acoustic. And that was a great great breakthrough for me with Roundabout, was that I thought at the beginning, wait, is anybody going to know that's me playing? And, but, you know, in a way, the acoustic became a big part of my my approach to music. Definitely. Oh, that harmonic riff. I worked that out. Yeah. So <laughs> that was early doors. That was such a brilliant opening. Yeah. But you, you, what you've not mentioned mm. is sort of what we normally hear from people on this show is the Beatles. Yeah. And, but that was still important to oh, you. I mean, no. you were never after the dirty rock sound of Pete Townsend or... Not really. I, I realised that that was quite electrifying, you know, quite electric, you know, in its, in its qualities. But, uh, you know, there was certainly, uh, when the Beatles came around, that was that was kind of it for a while. They were the biggest thing in my life until Bob Dylan, you know, until I got freewheeling. So, you know, the Beatles kicked it, kicked it into gear. And, and I've got just total 100% respect for everything they did. I mean, that that's, that's the best band ever that, 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 yeah. that's been around. And uh, I can't, you know, there's no time when they're not somewhere near me or have some part of what I do. And uh, I love I love all that dearly. To jump ahead slightly, did, weren't you recording in Abbey Road when they were doing Sergeant Pepper's at the same time? That's right. Tomorrow we're in there. And I did a reissue of of the Tomorrow album. It's now called. Oh yeah, I tried to find that by the way because I could only find the 1999 remaster. No, don't buy that, please. This is a different no. world. I did a kind of revolver on that where I took it. Didn't want to alter it too much, but I, I could see where we could improve things. And also the running order and the, some of the tracks went out and some others came in. So basically the, the sound that they made on all those records and was just so amazing that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't really, you know, but gradually the psychedelic, I mean, listen, 67 was the big year, you know, when Sergeant Pepper and Psychedelia and, and the Birds, for instance, that was another crucial band with me and Keith West. I mean, we just used to listen to how the Birds did things and go, oh, we want to do it like that, you know. So that's why we did their song Why uh, on, on, on our record. But basically... There was so much to absorb, you know, the Beatles kicked off a whole kind of phenomenon. And the Big Three were another band I liked, you know, Brian Griffiths was a great guitarist, you know, like, like Mick Green in The Pirates. So there was this kind of breed of great guitarists who, it's a kind of history, you know, from singers. Singers usually, I mean, in a band like, you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, the singer and the guitarist, if they get on and they write music or they play well together, it goes on. But that's been going on for years, you know, since Rick Nelson got, you know, James Burton, since Elvis Presley had Scotty Moore. There's a whole yeah, Mick and Keith of stories of singers with guitarists. And that's where I always dreamed I would be. I'd be standing there like this and there was a singer. You know, that was my kind of fantasy of, right, uh, right. of where I was heading as, as a young musician. Your first calling card, I mean, because you was like the generation before, you worked with Joe Meek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised yeah. you're not called Steve 
gorgeous or something or <laughs> Steve X. <Yeah. laughs> well, you know, I guess he, he renamed all his artists, didn't he? Oh yes, he did. That's right. I don't know whether he had Steve a name. Steve Proud. He, he did approach me a few times. And I Steve a, Unbreakable. Yeah, he, he got a little kind of like talkative about things. And I said, well, listen, Joe, you know, Joe, you know, I've got to go and see my girlfriend down in Tottenham. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. But basically he, he, it was a great introduction to production because I, I believe that Les Paul, in fact, is the greatest production producer well, invented multi-tracking, he did. didn't he? he I mean, but if you listen to the records he made, you think that, that how he made them, they were incredible. But later on, mm. of course, you know, the influence of, of his work, you know, when then you not know, only Jack is producing like the Everly Brothers and things like that, but but Joe, Joe believes, uh, I think you might know this, that, that uh, he, he was being, his ideas were being stolen by uh, one uh, yeah. Phil, uh, what was his name? Phil Spector, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit the other way around, really. But anyway, there was maybe some truth in it, you know, that, that Spectre had heard something. Just, this is really close to home for you, because this is Holloway. His studio was in Holloway, wasn't it? I fell out of bed and went into his studio. You know, we went in for an audition because the bass player, you know, Tottenham bass player, uh, his uh, his mum had the, you know, goals to to approach, um, write to him or something. I got a, my son's in a great band, they're called The Syndicates, you ought to see him. So he invited us in. <laughs> we locked the equipment <laughs> up the stairs and played. Well, she was off doing her shopping. She just popped in a, a little note <laughs> so, to Joe Meek. Hey, he liked her. The, the Syndicates, that's so, it's such, that's so kind great. Of funny, that's pathetic, but also... Name. But yeah, he liked he liked us, and, and, and you know he he did Maybelline, you know, pretty good job on that. And he and he he sped up the B side a little bit, and you know he was very strange to work with. I got to say, uh, you know, and he he sometimes fried, you know, and he'd say like, "You guys are terrible. I'm going out for an hour. When I come back, if you're not any good, you're out." You know, so we'd practice for an hour, and he'd come back. So that's all right. Okay, carry on. But you had the chops, Steve. We, you know, listening back to those early records, you're, yeah. it's still very obviously you. I was getting so many influences, you know, particularly jazz. You know, in that early thing, I was my mind was thinking, oh yeah, 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 all this rock and roll, great, but you know, the, listen to the and I. But that was because what when you heard Wes Montgomery, you just didn't know what the hell he was doing. I mean, how can you play a guitar that good? You know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, as a beginner, you're kind of like stumbling with just like playing the tune. So, yeah, I was determined to learn. Was there classical in there as well oh, yeah. for you? Because that, that comes out so much in your in your yes stuff. That came in very subtly because after after 67, I, I lived with my brother Phil for a while and uh, he was in the classical. And I, and, and I heard, you know, something like Vivaldi's Four Seasons or it might have been the flute concertos, actually. But anyway, I heard some Vivaldi and I thought, I like this guy. You know, I like the rhythm, so much rhythm and life and, and excitement in this in this music. Balancing all these different musical enjoyments is, is easy. I just go with the flow, you know. I, I'll just surprise myself, think, I'll listen to this or I'll do that or I hear that. So a lot of music just kind of flows around the world now, doesn't it? You don't have to be like looking yeah. for it before you hear it. Let's, so let's get to tomorrow because you are, I mean, this you're one of the key, you're one of the three bands, basically. There's Pink Floyd, Soft Machine and Tomorrow. You're a key player in that original UFO psychedelic scene. Yeah. Which is an amazing place to be. Yeah, it was, Surely. it was an amazing place to be, but, you know, what was going on there? Um, we were fumbling around a bit in the studio um, making the album. It came out late, you know. But when we released My White Bicycle as a single, I mean, it went great, you know. It was 
edging that up the charts. And it looked like tomorrow we're going to be like, hey, you know, this is going to be something. But it kind of didn't quite, you know, but it was ever popular live. But yeah. But Joe Boyd, you must have met Joe who run the UFO club. And and he, right. he, he, he and then he asked you to come on. I mean, was it early days? Was Did you did you support Pink Floyd at one point? I'm not sure. Well, no, you were, you were asked. It didn't happen, but you were asked to stand in for Sid one night. Weren't That's you? right. And it was going to be at, uh, at uh, the UFO. So that was a, 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 an exciting moment for me. But then suddenly, back at the last minute, he came in the door. So uh, I don't know what it would have been. It would have been a blindingly amazing improvisation. But I was going to mention that improvisation is is everything to me. You know, I, I was so lucky that I could sit down and just noodle on a guitar. Other people saying, have you done your, did you learn to do scales? I said, no, I don't bother with scales. But of course I did later on. But at first I was just noodling all the time. As soon as I could play something. I played imaginary things, you know what I mean? So that, that's that been part of why I write music altogether, because without improvisation, I wouldn't have a tune. <laughs> but let's just go back into that club, because that yeah, club is really. so important. And, you know, obviously, I don't know if you know, but Guy and I play with Nick Mason. We we do, yeah, you the, do that the, thing the Floyd with... stuff. So yeah. so it's it's dear to us as well. But <clears throat> what, was, what was that atmosphere like? Was there a sense of, of for youth culture that, that this there was a... It was it was now your turn. It, the Beatles and the beat groups had gone and it was your turn. Kind of thing. But also it was like the centre of the universe of musical, you know, happenings, you know, because happenings were kind of new. You know, I mean, before you just played a gig and people sat there, you know, but the happenings, they, they were really new. And going somewhere where it's all kind of happening, it's all that sort of like a cliche, but, but like there's, you know, there's stuff on the wall, there's music going, there's... I don't know. This, it was just like a jungle of of creative minds. Not all of them just music, but you know, dance and I, I really can't describe it. But it was a centre for being out of it <laughs> together and having a good time, you know. And, and and it was all just just barely legal, so you could you could go there and sort of uh, have such a wild time. I mean, one night we were. There, I, I mean, I don't know who opened for who, but people just played there. And uh, the crazy world of Arthur Brown, um, he he set the stage on fire with you know fire. <laughs> of course, <laughs> the place. Was, and of course, this is where it's true that, that Jimi Hendrix joined tomorrow on the bass and improvised with us for about ten minutes. No, uh, so was he in the club? Was he in the club? Yeah, he he was. It was that was at Blazes. Sorry, I, I must stick to the rules that was the truth is it that was that crazy rules <laughs> the truth i sort of like after you know after everybody had played and you know people went to this club and i even saw Joni mitchell uh, singing on her own there before she was even known so where was, was blazes where was blazes sorry where was blazes so blazes yeah this was this smart little club near oxford street I'm su i'm surprised you didn't hear about it I mean, it's, it's you're putting the ears on me now but yeah the speaking Blazers, yeah, no, no, yeah, I know that. That. no, no. I'm going to say yeah, I knew as, it, of as, course, as, as just from back, as one yeah, of those, right. you know, like bag of nails or, yeah, or all yeah. those. Yeah, other some places. remarkable people were. And you were like, playing there, and you got up and jammed, and, J and Jimmy grabbed the bass. Well, yeah, you know, I'm thinking whether it was Blazers or <laughs> the UFO. Um, you know, I think it was the UFO. Yeah. Okay, we'll have that. It was much yeah, we'll definitely have that. I'm amazed that this isn't uh, better talking. I think well, it I is am. mentioned. I mean, let's face it, everyone was off their head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is mentioned in my book, and I have mentioned it in uh, in a few interviews. So um, it might come back to me which one's 
And had you heard him as a guitar player? Oh, of course, yeah. In fact, you know, the tomorrow we're lucky enough to be... No, okay, Blazes. We were lucky enough to be the resident band in Blazes. We played there every Thursday. And Jimi Hendrix oh, came yeah. there, and he played... That was one of his first shows in the club called Blazes. If you look up his history, you will see... It's either that wow. was the second or it was the first show he ever did in the UK. And basically, you know, he showed up and nobody knew what he was doing. I mean, he was just amazing. You know, this huge guy up there with a strap around the wrong way. And it all looked wrong, but it all sounded right. And actually, he came off stage and sat down with us on the table. And there was Twink and, and Junior. And, you know, the band stayed. We were always hanging out together. And he said, I hear you're the opening band or something. So we were, he was so kind. Of course, we ran into him a few times, you know, after that opening for him, like, a, you know, at um, the, the big show, the Christmas on Earth concerts. And, you know, like you said, tomorrow, you were big and tomorrow up, and it's true. We were we were really well respected, and, and uh, it was a great time to be part of that whole, you know, um, style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And you were going to maybe be the band in Blow Up. Oh, yes. Isn't story about the guitar was made? It was actually a copy that, of yours instead of the other. Yeah, that's right. We we had the gig first and then we were ousted because obviously the, the, the Arbirds had a name. And but they didn't re, they didn't get new models of of Jeff's guitar or whatever it was. Uh, they didn't get a Strat. They, they, so he had to break a one seven five cardboard copy or something like. I mean, that's as much as I know. It does happen. Yeah, you hardly see him, but he starts breaking his guitar, and it's not his guitar. And of course, the whole thing was it was a mistake, wasn't it? Because the whole reason that scene was written because it was meant to be the hood. <laughs> it's a kind of horrible mix up. I don't know where. where <laughs> But while yeah. we're on the movie tip, oh, Smashing no, Time. I so I'd love to. That looks so great. I mean, it just looks dreadful, yes. but so fantastic. You are in, on IMDb time. as being in Smashing Time, Steve. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how we got that. You know, but the, the snarks. snarks. Right. There was. A, the, I were... should add that to my list of ten bands I've been in. I've also been in the. Snarks. Ah. Wait for it. Um, yeah, <laughs> it sounds like something. It sounds like something that you'd there's see a, in private. There's a guy, eye, I think. Yeah, it? yeah, it does. Uh, because I think there's a guy that really deserves a, a, a name check, and that's um, Lord Anthony Rufus Isaacs. And uh, I think he's still around. And basically, he was a guy who 
had all the connections where we were playing dead parties and you know these very smart players get paid loads of money and um so basically i think he had an in with films or something and the next thing we knew uh, we were kind of you know part of the story you know the snarks with this band that were doing it yeah but there's only there's only a couple of lines i think i i say something like let's have them or let's get them or something like that there's not very much <laughs> Before we move away from tomorrow, there's a couple of other things because I did hear. I, I met, is there though? Is there? There is. No, <laughs> there's. There's the day before tomorrow. Anyway, but uh, no, it's um, when you. I mentioned you were recording in Abbey Road when the Beatles yes. were, were there doing Sergeant Pepper's. There is this story. I'm sure it's apocryphal that you you needed a policeman's whistle and you went out onto the street looking for Absolutely. a copper. I mean, that's exactly right. <laughs> Um, I mean, making working with Mark Wurtz was really great fun. Uh, I mean, he was our, he was the only he was a, a really good producer for us because you know we let us do what we held we like mainly. But you know, he had some tricks, you know, backwards stuff, and he was you know he was up to speed. So yeah, we were doing uh, you know the song "My White Bicycle" and uh, needed a whistle, so we said, "How do we get a policeman's whistle?" You know, and next thing, somebody was outside looking for the policeman. Of course, they were only too happy to come in for five minutes. And, uh, you know, if everything was concealed and air sprayed. The guy comes in and, uh, OK, uh, see, do it here. We'll give you a cue. And the uh, policeman screams and I can't hear it. And he blows the whistle. Yeah. And he blew his whistle. Yeah, so that is, that is genuine amazing. police whistle. Did did um, did Hapsash and the Coloured Coat design a poster? Is there a tomorrow poster? Yeah, yeah. We because were, because we, what a, what a thing, Steve, that you have had the the Nigel Weymouth, Michael English, Hapsash design, and Roger Dean I know, in your life. I've, yeah, yeah just yeah. so lucky, and, and a sport, sport, absolutely rotten. Because you know both are great. I mean, Roger's Roger's been wonderful all over these years, but uh, those guys and that whole thing with Granny takes a trip, you know, and how we you know two hundred pounds shirts and things, <laughs> or maybe they weren't quite so expensive as that, but they you know it was worth. Worth having the right clothes, that was for sure. And if you had a few stars on your forehead, didn't hurt either. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I've been very lucky with, with design and photographers too. You know, a guy called Mickey Slingsby was, was an art photographer that uh, took a lot of pictures of me um, over my career. But other great guys, you know, Aerosmith, you know, some of the top photographers oh, yeah. filmed Yes and other bands I've been in. And a guy called Mike Russell, in fact, took some great pictures, GTR and other, other things. So I've seen how photography is so important, you know, and I enjoy it too. I take a few pictures. I put them in my album series, Homebrew. If it's a guy pushing a pram across the zebra crossing, I got it. You know, I want that. You know, <laughs> it's funny though because I, I don't know about you, guy. I mean, what I one of the things I loved about those early S albums is um, was the fact that it wasn't necessarily a picture, apart from on the S album. Obviously, there yeah. there was, mm. but it, it was this fantasy world that was mm. somehow. Oh yeah, no, it was um, where yeah. you know the music was coming from. It was coming right. from those floating islands. I know. It's just uncanny how well Rogers worked. Not only worked perfectly on Fragile, but then with the awful exceptions of when he he wasn't invited, all the other times he came up with sensational things. I mean, there's one album. I'm not going to mention what it was, but later on he did an album, and I said to him, "It's better than the music." <laughs> there was one album <laughs> that, that didn't work out so well. So he, Rogers been sustained. You know, had the sustaining power you know uh, uh, it's really amazing how well i think it's got the most it's probably the most symbiotic relationship of of kind of artists 
Uh, you is basically yes and Roger Dean. Yes. Pink Floyd and Hypnosis are the two yeah, most. Yeah, right. Even though, even though, I mean, every band jump was jumping on the bandwagon after that, weren't they? I mean, you know, to, you know, from Giant to, I mean, like, you know, people were all try wanted Roger Dean to make yes. those records. Somehow, they all felt like a bit of a rip off because it was yes, it belonged to yes. Yeah. Well, he did, but look at the shot I had when he did Asia, because Asia too had. Uh, with the um, dragon yeah the yeah. dragon it had the, the the logo with this you see roger was up to his tricks again and he, he cast the magic a little bit on on asia for a while and and some of that asia stuff is has lasted many many years you know and so he did that and some brew <laughs> he happened to do a lot of bands that i was in he's done some solo albums of mine as well including turbulence because the, i mean while we're on him we'll stay on him because I, mm. I mean even though we're not talking about you in yes yet but it, it it's, it's that logo that bubble writing of yes mm. all joining up yeah. i mean I, I don't know about you guy but i mean you're couple of years younger than me but every kid in my class every bloke in my class oh, true oh no could... no i did that on an exercise book <laughs> did it on, yeah you knew how to of course do it was the same because of course he did the virgin logo didn't he yes which yeah. is the same sort of thing that original virgin yeah logo. yeah he did quite a few <laughs> how were you introduced to him um we were oh it's it's kind of funny story we'd done the yes album blah 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 we were being managed by a guy and he at the time had a job at Hemda which became you know a big this was in like early very early 70s so he was working at Hemda somehow it's a fantastic uh, crossroads and here's yes sitting in this Mayfair office you know and, and it's all all kind of grappling to get food on the table and with somebody in a Mayfair office with these guys they're also doing so well great and then suddenly um through the management uh, or Hemdale you know we put the feelers out and this guy called Roger Dean comes in and shows us some stuff and, and we were instantly, you know, taken to it. And uh, so he went off and designed the fragile sleeve based on that. And Because if you put your guitar and John Anderson's lyrics into an AI machine, it would have come up with Roger Dean's front <laughs> covers, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but is it, this sounds like, is there a thing that, that like, mm. luckily he was, you were the guys that he came to see? Mm. He could have gone to see someone else yes. and then, you know, yes. everyone's story would be different. You see, some people wanted, and I think this is what hypnosis did for Floyd, they'd come along with like six pictures and you pick one, you know, one of them. But what Roger did was try and get a feel for the album and then go away and do one, you know. So um, it was very much, you know, it felt like it was a very personalised process. And that's true of all the albums. I mean, particularly, you know, not particularly anything. It's true of all the albums, uh, Tales from Tropical Gulf Oceans. You know, that's another exceptional thing. But I'll give Roger every bit of credit. He, he, he generally comes up with a concept. It's brilliant that you had someone with a very sort of strong visual identity to present to you because of you had all these competing, perhaps very strong personalities in the band. Certainly, we had a, an unusual, I think, you know, you needed a sort of special ear to like, yes, you know, it was <laughs> obvious because we, we didn't do single, you know, we weren't getting played like the regular, regular bands. We, we were carving a, a much more progressive rock approach to things, which was everything's a catalogue piece and we're going to make more records and we're going to do more tours. So we're just going to keep revolving. And, and yes, it always was and always will be fundamentally a, a fairly hard-working band you know we we haven't got to the point or nor do we really want to where you know everybody says oh we're kind of loaded let's call it <laughs> you know, 
we're we're kind of like we've got commitments, and and they partly to carry on the music that uh, you know the ones that we've lost started as well, hmm. and live up you know and live up to to the to the idea of what yes music is. We hope you you mentioned prog rock um, and not having no singles. There must have been something that pushed that that created that genre before yes, and I know that one of the bands that often gets cited is is the nice with keith emerson you you but actually auditioned for sorry yes yeah okay. you auditioned sorry. didn't you here's another quick story yeah that's right i did i i would have loved to do done that i mean i got the job but the next day i had you know palpitations on what the consequences for the people i was working with were going to be if i quit you know and i've never put who were you with at that point I was with this group, Bodast, you know, and... Uh, oh, but which, we, which came after uh, we were tomorrow, not, yeah, yeah, we were not getting very far. With an album that never came out, right? Your, no, your no, album, but a, you, you released the album yourself. That's right. Probably. Ten years later, I, I released it. But, but basically, um, that, was, that was a bit of a nightmare to come out of that and um, go into, uh, uh, you know, the next phase, um, which was to be something memorable. <laughs> so how Oh, hang on, but talking about, yeah, so sorry, while we're back there, because, yeah, you're playing with Ronnie Wood. That's right. And Ainsley Dunbar. Well, yeah, Keith West Keith got some solo tracks together. I mean, you yeah. know, it was a great time. There was a lot of roaming and gloaming going on with... So I'm saying, you were everywhere, man. You were <laughs> Just casually, yeah. I mean, also, I was quite a lot of here in my studios doing sessions, you know, for... <laughs> For the rate, but but basically that was also fun because Mark took me. Mark works took me under his wing. Not only well, I suppose he took me under his wing, and then he produced tomorrow because you know we got on so well, and he thought you know he'd like to produce tomorrow. I, I think we strayed off the question though. Did we left a, a question unanswered there? Is any? Well, it was the nice. Oh, yeah. I think the nice was so the... Was, yeah. I would have loved to have done that, and I got the job successfully. As I say, I got palpitations about you know letting a whole load of people down and i wouldn't recommend that that's not a, a very career conscious decision was that was that before five bridges or after um i can't well it was anything after dave lifts not being there would be when right when, okay okay so oh right because he went off with uh, mm. to work with uh, king crimson right did actually, or whether he was in a clear state of mind to do anything, because I thought the reason I was coming in was that Dave List had slightly lost it, and that you know he wasn't uh, working so well with with the guy. I don't know what the story. I can't remember. It's a long time ago, but um, yeah, there's lots of those little moments when you think, oh, that could have gone this way. Well, I love playing with mm-hmm. Keith, I must say, but there were other reasons too. A little bit of concern about the way he was set up with a guy, you know, walked in the pub and pulled out money. And I'd never seen that before, really. There, there was a sort of lack of discretion, I feel, business discretion, you know. But anyway, I was I was in a different camp, if you like. I, I wasn't in the camps, you know, like... I, it could, it, it, yeah, it could have been Emerson, Howe and Palmer at right. one point. Like, yeah. <laughs> 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 on the roll, on the roll. Goodness, yeah. So were you aware of, the, of Yes as a band before you ended up being... Um, Auditioning, just marginally, yeah. I mean, I'd heard this, but I'd heard about the band, and I heard they were very good. So I didn't hear, hadn't heard the music, and uh, but I'd heard about the reputation. So when the guys, you know, in Chris Gould, and I went and played with the guys in Barnes, it was just amazing. I mean, I walked in, plugged in. They said, "Yeah, well, we'll do this song. It's got G, and it goes to A, or something like the other." We messed around with some songs, and. Um, 
I thought they were great. You know, I really thought, hang on, this is really good. I'm better not. So who's in the room? Who's, who's well, in the room? Bill Bruford's on drums, Chris is Bill, yeah. on, on bass, and John's sitting there with a the microphone, and Tony Kay's on on Hammond, yeah. and where he's always comfortable and he plays like he plays it great. You know, he's a great player. So basically, that band was was really uh, exciting just to come in because they had and their own psychedelic band previous to that, which I think has still got the best name in psychedelia, which is Mabel Greer's Toy Shop. <laughs> Somebody did refer to that as possibly the tweest psychedelic yeah. group name, yeah, yeah. but it is. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, that's where Chris and uh, Peter Banks had been, I believe, together. And uh, yeah, but it was Chris. But, was Chris the driving force when you when you turned up that day? Was well, I mean, to me, I, I related more to to John when I met them both. You know, and John and I, I think I even went back to John's flat after this in, in Queensgate or something. He lived there with his with his wife. And we nice. talked about, I think there was the place where we talked. Before that, so I really only talked to John about joining the band, if you like. But at, at, at the rehearsal, it was obviously interactive. And, you know, the, the, they felt I was, uh, I was pretty good. Because uh, you I'd changed got, their style, didn't you, really? They weren't... Those first two albums don't sound like the Yes we now know on the Yes album mm -hmm. and once you joined. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, um, I've only, I, I don't think I've thought this before, but I would look back, when I've looked back with you kind of thing, like I think there's a lot more order. In other words, there's not overflowing amounts of something that kind of, some of the uh, arranging uh, or some of the mixing, you know, on time in a word, left it a little bit like it was a bit of a struggle. There was always this struggle going on in the sound. I think with Eddie Offord stepping up to the plate and co-producing that the Yes album with us, gave us all the chance to put input, but also we had a guy who was pretty clever at doing what he was doing, you know, and, and possibly a bit of he uh, ahead of his time. So that all helped tremendously. But who was guiding the way, do you think, out there as far as being able to make songs that were in multiple timings, key signatures that that were longer than a normal single. It was was it was it Fripp? Was it King Crimson? Who gave you the validation, the license to do well, that? There was a very good balance between John, who didn't really play a lot of chords, didn't really have a, a big technique, but he could strum away and, and get some melody going. But what he was also very very good at encouraging and allowing and it was the instinct of the band that everybody put stuff in you know not so much like another song but like if you had something you'd have to decide how you're going to play that and make it sound great you know so it wasn't just a question of like, going to play the roots and, and bill's going to stay in four four that was out you know that wasn't allowed so n nobody could float or just just drift along only for a while you know while you're finding your parts and of course, some of the best parts came from Chris, but they took a long time. So everybody had plenty of time to get your parts together while Chris was developing, you know, how to finesse his part. Or he'd overdub it or overdub some of it after we recorded it. But all that rehearsing was good. You know, we'd record things. It always sounded like, fortunately, 100% better when we, when we, like, worked on it in the studio you know we take it in and say that sounds horrible well, you, wouldn't you uh, some of it you, you you would literally assemble like sweets wouldn't you wouldn't it just be like one piece at a time 
well that we did record like that but usually yeah. we had to go in with a demo that that had most of the song maybe not all of it but most of the song and it ran through even if it was edited but yeah when we got in there we usually found because of the size of the tracks of course we 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 we'd only record one section if we were lucky a day you know and that section might be three minutes or it might be five minutes or it might mm. be two minutes so it just depends how we were going to do it. And as we went through the Yes album, I mean, it was really interesting because when we got to uh, uh, Your Move, I've Seen All Good People, you know, somewhere we said, well, mm -hmm. you know, don't let's play this. It's not going to work. So we, we created the loop, you know, that goes boop, 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 boop. That's all it is. Boop, boop. Kept going boop, boop. I think I had a note on it. Chris had a knee as well. Boop, boop. So basically there it was. And I went out and, you know, I we've agreed how how many of what we'd have because obviously you couldn't edit this later you know like you do today oh we'll have an extra verse oh great throw it in no mm -hmm. this had to be like you had to play it and every verse was was different so i'd go out there and i demoed the whole song if you like well not demo but i mastered the portuguese guitar all the way through it and that was the structure agreed you know well i didn't do it on my own but it was all agreed we'd have three of these two of them and half a dozen of them you know and then i had the chance to you know, do any fiddly bits I'd do it. And then maybe I'd track it. And then that would, quit, you know, then we'd add stuff. And, and so it was lovely that, yes, even in that early stage, we're actually taking on a production, nothing to do with playing. It had all to do with prepared musical ideas going into effect to create space and quality of sound, you know, where that Portuguese guitar is properly recorded. You know, nobody's hammering away in the background with the cymbal. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, everything was separate. Every, and it, the roundabout and uh, fragile really epitomizes that even more. When you got to that album, I mean, it's so tight, you know, oh, for its time, you know, Chris and, and Bill, you know, on roundabout and the, 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 the acoustic guitars I put on, the, the harmonics. I mean, that, that, that was a really good way to start it. You know? We didn't have any grunge. We didn't have anything to take out. We didn't have any mistakes, you know, that anybody did. It was all, I think that's what it was. It was pre preparation and structure and invention because we never said, let's do it better. You weren't overdubbing, were you? You were doing your guitar solo uh, on no, your own. I was overdubbing was was the big. I mean, I got some nice rhythm guitars at times, which you'll hear. Like maybe Jenna, ding, ding, ding. That's when the original guitar. But all the other verses and all the other stuff were were carefully worked out. Uh, you know, afterwards with, with the same guitars. You know, same amp. Right, right, right. And uh, and things like that, but basically, but you you you've always from from very early on. You were very very involved and kind of interested in the actual recording process of the guitar, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. I always felt that you know Kenny Kenny Burrell was a great example of jazz guitarist who I believe he always saw his guitar through, and I used to recommend this: don't just play and walk away, go out and have a beer. You know, watch how that guitar, where's the position? What's the EQ? What's the reverb? <laughs> Can we put some delays on it? You know, what do you want to do with that? Because you just recorded it. Don't leave it to somebody else who maybe thinks, oh, you know, thinks... That's right. Guitars <laughs> for life, not just for Christmas, right? That's <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I like that craftsmanship. And it's now, you know, I'm doing more production than I've ever done. But I've, you know, produced my own uh, solo albums. But I've been part of the team that's produced yes from day one you know but mm. i think you know, the, you know what i what i'm get what i get talking to you is actually you know we all think about prog rock coming from i just as i said earlier from bands like keith emerson and the nice but 
actually psychedelia was so important, wasn't it? I mean, those early yes. Pink Floyd albums, you know, with Interstellar mm. Overdrive and Source Full of Secrets, mm. what they well, were doing. Yeah, Gary, you're saying it was actually, I'm sorry, this just to reiterate your point, you carry on afterwards, it's just that actually that long form, free for, sort of prog structure comes from those Pink Floyd jams yeah. at the UFO club, yeah. I would have thought. Yeah, well, I mean, no, I said earlier, impro is everything. And I mean, you know, I would, I would, uh, I'm getting the memories of how important, you know, like a, a good guitar break is to me. You know, we do Siberian Couture and it's a great song. You know, it's complex. It's got lots of changing rhythm. There's lots of textures and sound. And then I go, and I start jamming, you know, and, and that's okay. Leave me with leave me with this for a few rounds, guys. Great, <laughs> you know, I like cooking up something on the guitar, and that that's a guitar break, you know. And we, we had uh, Rick Waitman on the show as well, and obviously, what a huge personality to come in. But you already knew Rick, didn't you? Didn't you do some sessions? Didn't you do Lou Reed with him before? No, that, that was done up when we were doing Topographic Ocean. Oh, so, so. It was sorry. but so but what a personality to come in. I mean, very different from Tony Kay and all the Moog stuff. Did you feel that enhanced what you did, or was there were you mm. sort of you know trying to find your own space? Now Rick had come in. No, it was the development of, of, with Tony. It was a shame Tony left, but but he didn't really want to do multi keyboards, you know, and, and he stuck to his guns in doing that. And uh, I, I, I love him much, but basically we were definitely looking for anybody who could who could play multi keyboards. Yes, needed that. You know, we needed the, the orchestral side, and we needed all the keyboards that came with you know organ, piano, electric piano, you know, whatever have you, harpsichord. You know, so we needed that, but also you know we needed somebody who was thinking you know about the about the future and the development of mini Moog, you know, Mellotron and all the other gadgety sort of keyboards that came out in the second half of the 70s were really exciting and uh you know i, I i've got more involved in in keyboards myself recently and basically it's a wonderful tool you know it's a wonderful wonderful way of, of making music um so yeah right then we we did need somebody who had the precision and the the uh well wanted to you know this i mean yes it's a a thing like you know do you want to break you know do you want to get in here and make it better and that was the approach we had, you know, when Alan joined and when and when Rick joined, and then Patrick Moraz, who was also uh, mm -hmm. pretty amazing, what he contributed. Um, and then Rick came back, and then then Jeff Downs came in. So I mean, the keyboard position is is really a, a big demand. You know, it's a very high demand job. How was it going into the eighties, though, uh, Steve? Right. Having Trevor Horn now as the lead singer for for the Drama album. Did, did you feel that, actually, were you nervous about becoming more commercial? Obviously, you become more commercial with Asia. Grace, I mean, you had the biggest selling album in, in America in 1980, yeah. whatever it was. But the, the drama thing was just amazing. I mean, it was totally amazing. I loved all of that. Because what happened was Chris Allen and I were rehearsing after the tomato, you know, period had ended. And uh, we kept not having anybody else in the room. So we suddenly realised... But John has know, left, right? Well, no, he hadn't officially, or maybe even Rick hadn't left, but they weren't there. And in reality, you know, for a few weeks, you start to realise they're not here and we'll just get on with this. So we started writing Tempest Fugit and this other stuff. And then Chris says to me, what do you think about Video Kill the Radio? So I said, yeah, but like, wow. He said, but that band has got a great album. So I listened to it. In fact, I listened to it on quad electrostatic speakers. And I listened to this and I'm going, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is this band. And I went to Chris, I said, 
you're totally right. I mean, these guys would be amazing, you know, and they came and they joined. And we did drama. And Machine Messiah is is now one of the live, most exciting tracks with, that we can play. It's really seriously exciting and electrifying. And uh, I don't really know why. But we love that album. We've done it in, uh, as an album series as well. So, yeah, the drama was was really something. Um, it brought Trevor and I much much closer, you know. And you know, of course, he, he loved Chris dearly and, and admired Chris for all his work because you know Trevor's a bass player. Yeah, and basically, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, you know. But Trevor's skills, you know, as a songwriter, were starting to really shine, you know. And uh, you know, they'd already proven, you know, done the Buggles album. You know, the Age of Plastic is is not a pop album. You know, I mean, that's a pop song, and a bit like you know Atlantic editing Roundabout and making it a chart success to help yes go forwards with Fragile you know we weren't thinking like that you know that's what the Buggles had they had pop success but there again yes yes didn't want that we weren't going to do that <laughs> we weren't going to go on stage and play video kill the radio star because Trevor and Jeff knew that wouldn't work yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's quite but then the, and then there's a lovely repaying of the compliment when um, um, Trevor gets you in to play on the Frankie Goes to Hollywood well that's right uh, I, I, I'm really you know happy to say you know Trevor and I stayed in touch and basically I, I popped in on a lot of things you know that, that happened giving it a try you know and been part of things that uh, you know I, I've learned more about because of it you know and how did you feel when you weren't there anymore and Trevor comes in and produces what becomes one of the biggest songs that yes ever made did you feel I mean listen you're you've got nothing to complain about because you've joined Asia no. right and Asia are you, huge you, you're not sitting in your bed sit with your press cutting right. company I mean you're fine <laughs> I mean utterly huge I mean with with yeah, commercial yeah. hits with, you know and then you've got you've got it's, it's amazing isn't it guy when you think about it you've got you've got the guy from yes the guy from ELP the guy mm. from King Crimson they get together and make the most commercial rock album you yeah, could imagine yeah. I think all of us wanted a big change. I mean, because, you know, Dad had 10 years. In fact, there was a moment where, I won't tell you the whole story, but, but Trevor and, and Chris and Alan had just left my house and Jeff and I were sitting there were going, um, seems like we haven't got any other guys in the van. <laughs> we're the only guys left. And I said to Tre uh, Jeff right then and there, I said, look, everything's been so much for 10 years. I, I don't want to attempt to re-slot another yes. So... And then, I, I, you know, I just left that. I don't leave that. And before long, I met John Wetton and then Carl. And then I suggested Jeff Downs joined, you know, us. And, and that's what made Asia a complete unit because we had the, you know, thumping keyboards and everything else happening. Thumping drums. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what's, what's Yes about to do now, Steve? Well, what we're about to do is um, we're uh, going to be rehearsing for European... UK Japanese tour that goes from uh, the end of April. It trickles along through May. We come to UK in the towards the end of May. We play the Albert Hall. I think it's on the third of June. I think it is. Oh. And yeah, we're, I think, go, I, we're I, going in just a little quote bit after me you. Until I've quoted myself. Yeah, we're, we're in after you. Fourth of June. Hope you're not on the fourth, mate, because <laughs> <laughs> you're there too. Great. Well, we're there on the. Tuesday the 4th of June and uh, we that's where we end that part of the show then we go to Japan in September uh, oh lucky you lucky you yeah Japan's a nice country to play 
And you don't get tired touring, Steve. It's it's all you like the energy still. Well, I wouldn't say it's not tiring. No, I'll never say it's not tiring. It is tiring. But, um, yeah, I've still got the energy for it. Um, and it, I've, I've enjoyed, in some way, the way it's shifted from, you know, 2019, we were in a role. In fact, we were in such a role in 2019, we had half the year off because we'd worked for half the year. And then we said, can't do any more. I mean, we just worked. What do we need to do? Nothing. Let's have it off. But then we didn't know what was in store. Um, a couple of years off from touring meant we could just record, you know, really great. I love to make records and we made The Quest and just recently Mirror to the Sky. Mirror to the Sky, which got us up, which I love, which Wait, is great. So, again, Roger Dean, Forte, everything's yeah. happening. So this tour leg is going to be, it's called something like the Tales of Yes tour. And that's because we're just looping around from 73 being a bit of an anniversary with Topographic Ocean. So we're not playing all of Topographic Oceans, but we play something about it, if you put it, uh, put it mildly. I love so, Topographic Oceans. I got it for Christmas, right? In fact, yeah. I think I got Topographic Oceans for one Christmas. I think I got Relayer for the next Christmas. <laughs> I remember Topographic Oceans, I put it on in the morning at Christmas while we're doing, mum's preparing the dinner and everything. <laughs> I think I got a side four and mum said, could you take that off? It's ruining our Christmas. Side three must have been, must I have think been it, a real... It's the war or something that was... Yeah, side yeah. three, yeah. Amazing, yeah. And side two is the great unplayed. We're playing some of side two. The side two is the great unplayed side because so long we, we didn't play that. And uh, so, yeah, we like to revisit that. But we put a set list together you know, we kick it around. It's got songs we like on it. And uh, that's what it's called, The Tales of Yes Tour. Fabulous. Thanks so much for coming on. And Steve, I've, there's one thing I've got to sh I really want to share with you, which is that I had an amazing box tick last year, which is that I got asked to play at the John Wetton Tribute. And I played uh, with, it was Phil Manzanero who put the band together and asked me to play with him and Chris Difford. And on drums... Bill Bruford, who'd who was you know who'd be who's been retired. It was the first thing he played for years, having been in retirement. It was fantastic. But what's funny was we played um, we played "Let's Stick Together," which is one of John Wetton's greatest bass lines, even though it's the simplest thing in the world. And it was quite funny because it's such a simple, straight-ahead thing. And uh, and I run with this, all the people who are playing that night. In fact, Chris Difford said at the end of the song, "That's the only four-four you're going to hear all night." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was Bill Bruford. He, he's not yeah, renowned for Bill And it was I've got it. It was just such a thrill to play with him. Yeah, I wanted to so. be there. I, I sent a video for that, and I dearly love John. And even though for many years, you know, we didn't speak because you know th there was so much distance between us, you know. Mm -hmm. But we really, from 2006 onwards, we we just warmed to each other in a way that was really remarkable. And love John so so Talking much. Of... Sorry, Steve. I, I wanted. So, uh, to ask yeah. you if you still, if you ever speak to John Anderson still, because obviously you have a different singer for Yes now, and uh, he's been there a long time. But I wondered if there, there was ever, a, you know, connection between you two. We're we're still in touch, and that's all I'll say. That's yeah. good. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah, Brilliant. he's a wonderful guy. Um, but yeah, as, as we were saying, that that it's amazing that Bill uh, played there, and um, my lips are sealed. But yeah, it's amazing what Bill did because he did stop playing for, for over yeah, years. Yeah, long, long time. And then yeah. he spent two years like relearning. So, you know, he's a formidable force and, and oh. uh, 
As Love I said it. to him recently, there's only one guy that plays like Will. <laughs> That's Will. He's had a remarkable career, but, you know, he just decided enough was enough and he's got another kind of way of doing it now, which I'm really pleased. You, you don't think he got upset when I asked if he speaks to John Anderson still, do you? He was so upset. Really? Does he hate, he so does he hate That's me? Why the, that's why we stopped. You know, we've actually had to pad this out, listeners. He, we actually only had three minutes. We started really well, and then you had to say that. I know. I didn't know whether I said the wrong thing or not. But, you know, you wondered, no, don't you? You wondered, don't no, you? But, no, but you're quite good at that, Gary. You're quite good at... Because uh, everyone wants to know, yeah, you know? Yeah. So it's like you're the... Unfortunately, that's... You're well, the guy... Well, having been in there. a band, an estranged band myself... Uh, I, I, well, exactly. I mean, what's it? Uh, okay, let, so let's turn this around. How do you feel when people come up and ask you that? I, th- I think it's an honest question. Just nothing. What I didn't ask him was if he supports Arsenal or Tottenham. I couldn't believe that little floating he's doing between Highbury and uh, between Holloway Road and Tottenham. But there you go. Um, I, I thought he. Was, I thought it was great to have on, and and you know, such a a man who is so keen about the music still. Yeah. Yeah. You want a wee, don't you? I'm dying you, for a you wee. You need a wee. See, that's the trouble with long podcasts when you're old. <laughs> ah, maybe our listeners but our, our listeners can have a wee while they're listening, can't they? You can't have a wee while you're recording, or are you? That's just Is there it. some sort of that's commode you're sitting on? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I'll, 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 we'll see you all next week. You'll hear us next week. We'll have someone brilliant on, hopefully. I think we, I know we have. We'll have someone brilliant. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's a good one. Well, it's always good. It's always good, isn't it? Until then, it's good night from me. It's good night from all of us. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.